Romans 9, verses 6 through 9, these are God's words. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh... These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. So far the reading of God's inspired and inerrant word. We had a glorious end to chapter 8, in which we were made certain that God, having loved his elect, having loved those whom he was going to save from before the world began, uh, would not stop loving them for anything that came in time or in the creation, that we cannot be separated from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. But we have, throughout Scripture, and throughout church history, and much more close to home in most, if not all, of our own individual experiences, those who seemed to be believers, those who seemed to be justified through faith in Christ. They seemed to be Christians. They even had the name Christian upon them. They had the sign in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the sign of baptism applied to them. And yet they did not at last turn out to be believers. They rejected the faith. They turned away from God. They lived and believed opposite their baptisms. They died in their sins. And so this is, there is a doubt, rather, that uh, may enter into our hearts as we are dwelling upon God's word of salvation to us, his promises, like we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, like He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Promises like, in all these things, we are super conquerors. Promises like, no created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The question then is, is it possible for God's word, for God's promises to fail. And this is a question that is made very pointed at the time that the apostle is writing, Romans chapter 9 in particular, because as we heard last week, there were many who had the name Israelite. There were many to whom pertained the adoption. They recognized that God is the father of his people. There were many who gathered for worship, which was, among other things, 
a display of God's glory. There were many who were members of the covenant people in various administrations of the covenant. There were many who had the law, who had the word of God and the service of God, the worship and the promises. There were many at the time that the apostle was writing who had had all of these things, his countrymen in the flesh, the Jews, who were not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of them, even by this time, of course, dying apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, without a righteousness that would stand before God, without payment for their sins, maybe having lived what others would consider an upright, decent life, but who would go to the wrath of God, for whom the apostle himself had said that he could wish that he was accursed from Christ for those Jews. And so, verse 6 begins with the strong declaration, it is not that the word of God has failed, or it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. Now, one of the things that we sometimes come across is when a child who grew up in the church and had believing parents and was properly called the way the Bible calls them, saint and taught to pray to God as father and saw glimpses in the church of the fact that the glory of Christ and the glory of the world to come had come in Christ to whom belong the covenant and who had received the covenant sign of baptism, who learned and heard and read the Bible and participated in the worship of God and heard the promises. And yet they have turned away from the faith. They have perished in their sin. Many, thankfully, that we know, probably primarily those who were who we might have been thinking of just now as we were rehearsing again the list in verse 4, are yet not dead, and there is life, so there is still hope. But can can we really hope? Can we really hope for ourselves? Can we really hope for our children? It's a question that many have, for instance, when they're coming from uh, a Baptistic reading of the scripture and uh, they don't understand, they don't read the Bible through uh, even this language here, the covenants, uh, plural, the various administrations of the covenant of grace. And yet even if, uh, even if they are wondering uh, perhaps for themselves, perhaps for their children, this is the true question, this is the bigger question. Not, can I really hope that I am going to be saved? And, or can I really hope that my children, whom God has called saint, upon whom, unto whom God has applied his sign, can I really hope that they are going to be saved? But the question is, can I really trust the word of promise about me? Can I really trust the word of promise about my children. 
If the word can be negated by my failures, then how can I genuinely fully hope that I am saved? And if the word about my children can be negated by my own failures and by my children's failures, how can I really hope that they will be saved? And so here is a huge question being immediately answered. It is not that the word of God has failed, or as our version has it, it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. And so we must immediately, we must immediately answer, yes, I can really hope. The question is, in whom is my hope? Because it's precisely if I am hoping that I will walk with the Lord well enough and mature enough, that I am sincere in my believing in the Lord Jesus, that I am devoted to him. If that's what I'm hoping, then my hope is misplaced. It's precisely if I'm hoping that my children will pay good enough attention and that going to the right sort of church and having the right sort of family worship, that all of these things will result in the salvation of my children. If that is my hope, then my hope is misplaced. The one thing that doesn't fail is the word of God. And so as for yourself, as you, as you pursue sanctification, as you read and pray and attend the public worship and keep the Lord's day and give him your heart in, in the worship assemblies week by week and in the family worship and in your personal worship day by day in the home. You're doing so not because you hope that those exercises will save you or that your membership will save you or that doing things the right way will save you, but you're hoping in him whose word never fails. He never fails. His word never fails. We fail. Which is, incidentally, we'll get there in a moment, part of what's behind the two places that he quotes from in verses 6 through 9. Because he quotes from verse 7 in a place where Abraham's faith was falling or faltering. And he quotes in verse 9 in a place where Sarah's faith was falling or faltering. And so right up front at the beginning of our passage, he says, it is not that the word of God has failed. And so take out of it, take out of it the question, can the children of believers be lost? Absolutely they can. Noah was a believer and we are all his children. Adam was a believer and we are all his children. And many, as we see here in Romans 9, even weeping with the apostle, grieving with the apostle, many of the children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were perishing at the time. The children of believers can be lost. And members of the church can be lost. 
and circumcised people then and baptized people now can be lost. But the word of God cannot fail. And God cannot fail. And so this passage right at the beginning says, take all of our hope off of our membership and off of our use of the means and off of the sacraments and off of our human relationships, even within a believing household. Take all of your hope off of any and all of that and put it all on God himself who does not fail to save. And you hope in yourself. You you hope for yourself in God and you hope in God for your children. And you teach them to hope in him too. Because they cannot be saved by your hoping in Christ. They must be saved by their hoping in Christ. And you're not hoping that the baptism will work, or the Lord's Day keeping will work, or the reading will work, or the praying will work, or the, the child rearing and the homeschooling and the discipling and the discipline and instruction and all of those things that God has told you to do. You're hoping that God will work. And you're teaching them to hope in him too. You're teaching them. We don't do these things because they work. We do these things because he works. And he's the one who's appointed them. And so we're hoping in him and you welcome them to come and hope with you so that they will not only be children of your flesh having a family resemblance so that their face looks like yours unless they're adopted, although sometimes the Lord marvelously does that too. But that they will also be children of the same promise hoping in the same promiser, the Lord God, hoping in the same promised one, the Lord Jesus, hoping in all the same promises about the Lord Jesus and who he is and what he has done and how he applies himself to us by giving his spirit who gives us life, who gives us faith. Because that is what cannot fail. The word of God has not failed. This is the only hope that we have for ourselves, the only hope that we have for our children. And it is a sure and good hope for ourselves. And it is a sure and good hope for our children. There's never been a parent who hoped in God for his children and whose children came to hope in God for themselves and they were lost. The truth is, all parents fail in much, and all children fail in much, but God never fails, which is why he gives us signs concerning them, and he speaks to us concerning them in a way that takes our hope off of ourselves and off of them and puts our hope on him for them, and we teach them the same this is, incidentally, one of the reasons why you don't sit around in the congregation and judge everyone else in the congregation. Because our hope for them isn't that they're members. It isn't that they're doing well enough as, uh, as believers. It isn't that they are 
coming to the same theological knowledge or maturity that we have uh, as quickly as we have, which, by the way, is a sign of spiritual immaturity if you are measuring one's, someone else's maturity against yourself. But we hope in the one who has promised concerning them. And that helps us love one another. Because love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And so we don't say, well, I don't think she's a Christian, or I don't think he's a Christian, or you know they're going to be lost. No, we hope in the one who promises, and we hope in the promised one, and we hope in what he has promised about Christ and what he does. Well, the word of God has not failed. So what has happened? Well, what has happened is something that is still true in the church today, something that was always true. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. We saw last week that he's, uh, he's using or distinguishing uh, covenantal and ethnic Israel, those who are ethnic Israel descended by the flesh from Jacob, those who are covenantal Israel, they're members of the covenant people, not all descended from, from Israel according to the flesh. Uh, by the way, there are a number of Gentiles, not that many in the Old Testament. That wasn't the time in which God gathered the nations into his church. But there were those who were covenantally Israel, came to be called Israel, even though they weren't descended from Jacob. But uh, ethnic Israel and covenantal Israel, or rather, a, a, the child of a believer or the member of the church is not necessarily spiritual Israel. Meaning those people upon whom God has set his love from before the foundations of the world in a way that would call them according to his purpose and bring them to love him so that we know that all things work together for their good. Just to use the language of verse 28 not too many verses ago. That spiritual and eternal Israel. Now it's important, it's going to be important for us when we come to chapter 11 to recognize that yes, God does use the word Israel sometimes in very near context in two different ways. So that he may be speaking in one part of a statement about ethnic or covenantal Israel on the one hand and in the other part of the statement about elect Israel who are going to be saved in the, on the other hand. And those who say, well, you can't do that, they are unable to make any sense of verse 6, where it's quite obvious that these are two different identities. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. It's also important here to see that God himself makes this distinction between the visible church and the invisible church. There are some who say that's an artificial distinction. It's a theological category invented by the scholastics. If I'm a baptized church member, I'm going to heaven, and I know it because I'm a baptized church member. Well, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. They are not all going to be saved who were circumcised church members of the church in the wilderness to use Stephen's spirit-inspired description of Israel in his final sermon. 
And so there is a real distinction between the visible and invisible church. And that doesn't mean that we sit in the pews of the visible church in anxiety over whether or not we are in the invisible church, the true and everlasting and saved church from all the nations throughout the ages. It means that we heed the call to repent and to believe, to rest upon Jesus, to hope in the one who has promised and the one who was promised and the things that he has promised about himself. Because we know that that's what marks the invisible church. That's what marks all those who are saved. They hope in him. And so, yes, we have this duty to covenant children and indeed to all church members. And sometimes we have difficulty with that duty. That doesn't surprise us. We're fleshly. We have difficulty with all of our duties. And so sometimes you have difficulty calling your child a saint. But if you're a member of the church, your children are set apart to God as holy, like 1 Corinthians 7 says. And he calls them saints. And you teach your children to obey you in the Lord. You don't say, well, I hope they come to be in the Lord one day so that I can teach them to obey me in the Lord. And sometimes it's difficult to call other church members saints. But can you just imagine Paul writing to the Corinthians and all the things that he was going to put in 1 Corinthians. And he addresses them as saints. Because we, uh, we have a duty to covenant children and church members to call them Israel, as it were, to use that covenantal language, or to call them saints, as we were just describing, or to call them Christians, and to consider them as in possession of the various benefits in verse 4, who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. So we look around in amazement at these people who are unimpressive in themselves, but we are amazed at the grace of God to them, and we refuse to be hard-hearted and spiteful and cold and despising with those whom God has graciously said things like he says in verse 4. And to hope not only that they will have those things, but the things that accompany salvation. Hebrews chapter 6, there's a similar list now, not with respect to the Old Testament church like the, what we have in chapter 9, verse 4 of Romans, uh, but to the New Testament church. Hebrews 6, verse 4, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. They're very similar to the list in Romans 9, 4. If they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, etc. Verse 9, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. And so, yes, we urge one another not to rest in the benefits that we have as members of the church. And we certainly urge one another 
not to turn away from Christ after having had all these benefits. And we call one another to repentance and faith. We're always doing that with one another. But we do so in hope, believing concerning them, hoping concerning them for better things, the things that accompany salvation. As we plead with them that through faith and patience expressed in the diligent labor of love, they would inherit the promises. Note that hoping for one another's salvation, and if we're thinking again with ourselves and having hope for our own salvation, doesn't mean we don't call ourselves to the things in the following verses in Hebrews 6. And certainly it doesn't mean that we don't call our children to those things. How many who have come into a good covenant theology in which they have hope in God's promises concerning their children will then abuse it. And it won't be a Bible hope like the apostles' hope in Hebrews 6 verse 9. It'll be a presumptuous hope. They don't evangelize their children. They don't call their children to repentance and faith. They treat them as being secure and having arrived just because they are theirs. And how many of us have done it with ourselves? Rather than in hope in God, addressing ourselves the way the apostle addresses them. But this is what he says uh, to those uh, about whom he is confident about things that accompany salvation. He says, For God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love, which you have shown in his name that you have ministered to the saints and do minister, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You see, his, his confidence is not a presumptuous confidence that says, you're in now, no need to repent, no need to believe. We'll just congratulate one, one another on how saved we are. No, he says, through faith and patience, keep laboring and being diligent in your work of love because these are all means by which uh, and evidences of the Lord's work in our lives. The word of God has not failed. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. Who then inherit the promises? <clears throat> the answer is, not those who are merely uh, children according to the flesh, or children who are the seed. That's the language of verse 7. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. And then verse 8, these seed of Abraham are called children of the flesh. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are accounted as the seed. So those who are merely children uh, that are the seed or that are of the flesh are not necessarily inheriting the promises. And so we may turn to our own children and say, you who have come from my flesh, you who are descended from a Christian father, 
Come now, not just to be the child of my flesh, but a child of faith. Come now, not to be uh, a child only of your earthly father, but a child of your father who is in heaven. But who are these children of God? Because that's the, that's the language in verse 8. Those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. And so it's the children of God, those who are adopted in Christ, those who have been foreknown in the Son, those who are being conformed to his image. That's what we want to know ourselves to be. That's what we want to see our children be. That's what we hope for the rest of our uh, of our church, the church for the other members of our church, that they will be. Well, the children of God then are the children of the promise. That is, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are reckoned as the seed. And so, being the true seed, the children of Abraham, not by the flesh but by faith, is something that becomes by a reckoning, by an accounting. And this, of course, comes through faith. Abraham believed God and it was accounted for him as righteousness. Abraham was not, was not saved by being Abraham. He was saved by believing in the offspring who was going to come from him, that is, in Jesus. Isaac was not saved even by being the one through whom Jesus came. He was saved by hoping in the offspring that would come through him. Ishmael, praise God, wasn't lost by not being the one through whom Jesus came. He was saved by believing in the one who came through Isaac. Children of God are those who are children of the promise that came through Isaac children of the promise of the son who was born in due time. <clears throat> Verse 9, for this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. God, God promised something and he fulfilled his word and, uh, and the next year uh, Isaac was born. But God promised Christ and as Galatians 4 and other places say in the fullness of time he sent his son into the world born of a woman born under the law and so Isaac is a sort of type or a foreshadowing of Christ God made a promise concerning a son and he kept the promise concerning that son and that was immediately fulfilled or at least within a year fulfilled in Genesis 18 Many times we've seen this so far in the book of Isaiah, haven't we? Where there was a promise made that was within the next three years or so in the early part of the book of Isaiah. And it was tied to a promise that would not be fulfilled for several hundred years. But the fulfillment of the promise within three years assured, affirmed that the king that was being promised through whom Israel would be redeemed, through whom Judah would be redeemed, through whom even Sinners from the nations would be gathered in and be redeemed. That this king would come as promised and he has come and he is Jesus. And if you hope in him, you are saved and you can be sure, not because of how sure you are of your hoping, 
but how sure you are of Christ and of the promise that is made concerning him. And so it's a faith that we need to have from him by grace. Genesis 21, verse 12, Sarah had said, send Ishmael away. He was about 17. Isaac was about three, probably. They had a a party for Isaac, and Ishmael was picking on his three-year-old brother who had just been weaned. And Sarah said, send him away. I don't want him in the same house as the son of promise. And Isaac and Abraham didn't want to do it. He didn't have the same attachment to what was promised to come through Isaac. And what does God say? He says, listen to the voice of your wife. Which is pretty shocking in the book of Genesis, because in Genesis 3, that's kind of how the fall is described as happening. Adam listened to the voice of his wife, it says there. Same language, but this time he says, listen to the voice of your wife. For in Isaac, your seed shall be called. God actually affirms. You know what Sarah is is asking for is actually something that doesn't come from spite. It comes from faith. Her hope is in a savior that is going to come from the three-year-old, not from the 17-year-old. And she's guarding that hope out of trust in Christ. That's the context of the quote in verse 7. A point at which Abraham, after all these years, was not living consistently by that hope in a way that his wife was. And of course, that's the reverse of what had happened in chapter 18. You remember when Abraham believed and laughed, but Sarah disbelieved and laughed. And so this shows that Isaac was not saved because either of his parents were great believers. Because the Holy Spirit quotes for us two instances, one for each, in which they were not great believers. And those of us whose faith is weak and intermittent, and sometimes we are sure about Christ, and sometimes we live in a way that exposes doubt, or at least not wholehearted resting like we should. And we wonder, what will happen with my children, children of such a father, whose faith is so small and weak and intermittent? And the answer is we don't hope in the faith of the Father any more than the hope for Isaac was in the faith of Abraham or in the faith of Sarah. It was in the one who was promised through Isaac. And that's the same hope I have and it's the same hope you have. And oh, dear children, it's the same hope your elders in the church plead with you to have, to hope only in Christ, not in your membership, not in what we do, not in your family, not in your parents. As great a blessing as believing and godly parents are, but that you hope only in the Christ who is promised. This is the hope that we must have for ourselves and for our children and for all of the members of Christ's church. Amen.